right, Matthew 27, beginning in verse 9. Please stand together with me out of honor to God and His Word as I read. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Thank you. You may be seated. So we're looking at prophecies at the crucifixion. Now, actually, Matthew, in this particular one for our text this morning, he's a little bit before the crucifixion, but you'll see as we go along, there's several prophecies that are fulfilled at the crucifixion. Now, one of the world's most famous prophets is Moses. One of the most famous prophets in the world is Moses. And I heard an old joke, but it's still funny, about Moses. So President Bush, he sees Moses sitting on a bench. So he goes up to Moses and he introduces himself. But Moses ignores him. President Bush tries again and he says, Hi Moses, I'm President Bush. But Moses ignores him again. So President Bush starts getting irritated by being ignored. So he gets right in Moses' face and he says, I'm President Bush, why aren't you talking to me? And Moses replies, because the last time I talked to a bush, I had to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. <laughs> Let's look at prophecies at the crucifixion. Just by way of introduction, God uses prophets to deliver his messages. He uses prophets to deliver his messages. And prophecy comes in two forms. The first form is the one we think about all the time, and that's foretelling the future, saying what's going to happen in the future. But the other one is foretelling the present. So prophecy comes in two forms, foretelling the future and then foretelling the present. With the completion of the scriptures, foretelling the future is no longer necessary, but foretelling is as necessary as it always has been. In fact, I will tell you, I am a prophet. I don't foretell the future. I foretell what God has already said in his word. And biblical prophecy often has a double meaning. What I mean by that is it meant something when it was written, and then it means something for the future much later on. But know this about prophecy. When God declares something will happen, it will happen. When God declares something will happen, it will happen. Like, for instance, God declared the destruction of Israel. That came in 722 B.C. and also 586 B.C. He declared it would happen. It happened. God declared the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. That happened about 2,000 years ago. God declared it. It happened. God also prophesied that the ministry of Christ resulting in His death on the cross. God said it would happen. It happened. Now, the rapture of the church is yet in our future, and yet God said it's going to happen, so guess what? It's going to happen. The reign of Antichrist, the Bible talks of Antichrist, is going to reign, the whole, uh, reign over the whole world. God said it would happen. It will happen. The battle of Armageddon, God said it will happen. It will happen. The millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years, God said it will happen. It will happen. That's what you need to know about prophecy. When God declares something, it will come to pass. But how does God know the future? I mean, how does He know the future? Well, first of all, God is omniscient. That means He knows all things. And so He would certainly know the future as well as the present and the past. The other reason God knows the future is that He is an eternal being. And He is in eternity uh, outside of time. So you and I know 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. That's what we know. God's outside of that. He's eternal. In fact, He sees history like a parade not from the roadside watching one float go by after another. But he watches a parade the way I like to, from an airplane looking down. He sees the beginning, he sees the end, all at once. 
If that's how God sees time, he's outside of time, so he certainly knows not only the past, he certainly knows not only the present, he knows the future. Well, Matthew wrote for a Jewish audience, so he frequently focused on fulfilled prophecy. In fact, no less than 15 times, Matthew in his gospel will say, and this fulfilled the prophecy of whatever the name name of the prophet was. In this case, in verse 9, we're looking at Jeremiah. But he says, this fulfilled that prophecy, and then he quotes from the Old Testament prophecy. Now, why would Matthew do that? Knowing he was writing to a Jewish audience. Number one, he knew the Jews knew the Scriptures. Number two, he knew the Jews knew the prophets. And so Matthew wanted the Jews to see fulfilled prophecies in Jesus and in the events of Jesus' ministry. So today we want to look at prophecies at the crucifixion. And again, we start a little bit before the crucifixion with uh, the the prophecy that I read beginning in verse 9. But you will see as we go along, we get really into the crucifixion. So the first prophecy here in this chapter is coins in verse 9 that we read for our text. Coins. We know that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We also know that Judas tried to undo what he had done later on. According to verse 3, he takes the money back, that 30 pieces of silver that he had got for betraying Jesus. Verse 3 says he takes it back. And verse 7 tells us that that money that he took back was used to buy a burial field for foreigners. Now, the religious leaders of the time, uh, they had a problem taking blood money because Judas had betrayed Jesus and Jesus would be put to death. They called that blood money. So they had a real problem taking blood money, but they had no problem condemning an innocent man, Jesus Christ. Even so, Judas tries to undo what he had done. But do you realize this was prophesied? In Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah chapter 19, both of which talk about the potter, and Jeremiah chapter 32, which talks about buying a field. And these prophecies that Jeremiah wrote took place 600 years before this event ever occurred. Not only did it fulfill Jeremiah 18, 19, and 32, but it also fulfilled Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. And Zechariah wrote his prophecy 500 years before this event took place. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but let me read it. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me my price. If not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it to the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And so again, Jeremiah's prophecy, written 600 years before the event. Zechariah's prophecy, written 500 years before the event. God said it was going to happen, and it happened. Not only that, but concerning Judas, his betrayal and his subsequent replacement was also prophesied a thousand years before. So Judas' betrayal was prophesied a thousand years before. His subsequent replacement as one of the apostles, again, was prophesied a thousand years before. His betrayal is found in Psalm 49, excuse me, Psalm 41 and verse 9. And his replacement is found in Psalm 69, 25, Psalm 109, verse 8. And then we're given, it to, given to us in Acts chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. And so you can look at that on your own. But anyway, we see that in some cases hundreds of years, in other cases a thousand years, God says it's going to happen, and it happens with the coins. Secondly, though, let's look at the clothes. Look down to verse 35, the clothes. It says there, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. 
So it says there that the guards gamble for Jesus' cloak. He's on the cross, and they're gambling for his cloak. Now, this was a common practice of the time. This was not something unusual. In fact, the crucified person would no longer need their clothing, right? Uh, They're not going to use it ever again. And if it was a nice piece of clothing, the guards would want it. In fact, it was a perk of being a soldier on crucifixion detail. And so if there was only one soldier, you get the clothes. If there's two or more soldiers, you've got to gamble for it and figure out who gets to keep the clothes. But do you realize this idea of gambling for Jesus' clothes was prophesied in Psalm 22 and verse 18 a thousand years before Jesus was ever crucified? And a lot of people don't really know this, but crucifixion was usually done without clothing. It was usually done without clothing. And this would just add to the shame of the one being crucified. So they're already being shamed. They've gotten in trouble for something. They are hanging on this cross. Everybody's looking at them. And now they don't have any clothes on, making it even more shameful. Not only that, but being unclothed would expose the entire body to the elements as well as to scavenging birds and insects. What I want you to remember about this is that Jesus suffered more than just the nails and the spear. We often think about how they drove nails into Jesus' wrists and into his feet and drove a spear in his side and the crown of thorns on his head, and that's all true, but he suffered even more than just the nails and the spear. The Bible says Jesus became sin for us. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But not only did Jesus become sin for us, in addition to the nails, in addition to the crown, in addition to the spear, he became shame for us. And so we see the coins fulfilled prophecy, the clothes fulfilled prophecies. Let's look thirdly at the criminals in verse 38. Let's read that. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Jesus was crucified between two malefactors, between two malefactors. Now this was prophesied in Isaiah 53 and verse 12, 800 years before it ever took place. 800 years before Jesus was ever crucified, Isaiah said he's going to be crucified with bad guys. And that's exactly what happened. Now I think you know the story that both criminals jeered at Jesus. When everybody else was making fun of Jesus, they joined right in. Look in verse 44. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. And so as everybody else was jeering Jesus, mocking Jesus, they started mocking Jesus as well. But you probably know the rest of the story from Luke 23 and verse 42 that one of those criminals turned to Jesus. One of those criminals asked Jesus, said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus told him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, what amazing faith that crucified thief had to pray to a dying Messiah. The one he's praying to is on a cross. He doesn't have all the benefit of the New Testament like you and I do, that Jesus was dying for our sins and all that. He didn't know that Jesus was going to rise again. All he knew was he believed that this was the Messiah. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What amazing faith to pray to a dying Messiah. Let's learn this, that Jesus will accept anyone regardless of his past. There's a lot of folks that think, well, you know, I did this and I did that. I did it with this person. I did it for this length of time. And there's no way Jesus could have me. There's no way Jesus could forgive me. But the fact of the matter is Jesus will accept anyone regardless of his past. You see, it doesn't matter who it is. We are all sinners. But he cleanses us from all of our sins. 
there's a company out there when your house gets flooded or your house gets burned. It's either called Serve Pro or Service Master, but their slogan is this. They'll put it back like it never even happened. They'll say, like it never even happened. That's their slogan. Well, that's what Jesus does. He takes our sins, and we're all sinners. He cleanses them completely like it never even happened. In fact, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Paul talks about being a new creation, a complete transformation. Now let me say this, every birth is a creative act of God. Whether you're talking about the first birth, uh, the first birth, and we've all been born at least once, right? Uh, we've all been born. That's a miracle. But the second birth is also a miracle. Your physical birth is a miracle. Your spiritual birth is a miracle. And when it comes to the second birth, Jesus taught the second birth is essential. He said in John 3, 3, you must be born again. But notice the last phrase of this passage here. All things are become new. That sounds weird, doesn't it, in English? All things are become new. We don't talk like that. But that's very intentional, written that way. Paul is using the Greek perfect tense, which means this is something that becomes new and stays that way forever. Like it never even happened. It becomes new and stays new forever. And so the point is that Jesus will accept anyone regardless of his past. No matter what you've done, no matter who you did it with, no matter how many times you did it. Through Christ Jesus, you can be completely forgiven like it never even happened. And so we see the coins, we see the clothes, we see the criminals, but there's more. How about the crowd? Look at verses 39 and 40. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And so those gathered the cross mocked Jesus. Those passing by, verse 39 says, the religious leaders in verse 40 and 41. Do you realize this was prophesied in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, a thousand years before the crucifixion ever occurred? Now this mocking added even more shame to the crucified. So you're being crucified, that's shameful. You don't have any clothes on, that's extra shame. And now people are standing around making fun of you, that adds even more shame. And notice what these people were saying. Save yourself. They were telling Jesus, save yourself. And they even added to it, he saved others. He can't save himself. As I told you last week, Jesus came to save us, not himself. And then they're saying, come down from the cross. You're the son of God, come down from the cross. As I said two weeks ago, Jesus didn't come down so you and I could go up. And then they said, let God deliver him if God will have him. Well, Jesus was delivered to the cross for us. But Jesus was delivered through the cross for himself. He obeyed and he overcame. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. And so, yes, Jesus was delivered to the cross for us, but he was delivered through the cross for himself. So we see even the crowd is prophesied. But there's more, and we looked at this a few weeks ago. Look at verse 46 at the call. The call. 
It says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus called out to his Father. Now this was prophesied in Psalm 22 and verse 1, a thousand years before the crucifixion. As I said a couple weeks ago, Jesus felt separation from his Father for the first time in eternity, and he expressed it as being forsaken. But Jesus was doing something else. He was directing his detractors and his followers to Psalm 22. As I mentioned before, teachers would often quote the first part of a passage, and the students were expected to know the rest or at least go find the rest of the passage. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Not only did he feel forsaken, but he was also saying, Hey, go look up Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David a thousand years before Rome even invented crucifixion. And yet when you read Psalm 22, verses 14 through 16, it describes crucifixion in detail. A thousand years before it was even invented. And so we're seeing now, when God declares something, it comes to pass, whether it's the coins, the clothes, the criminals, the crowd, the call. Look at one more. How about the count? The count. Now, this is not in Matthew, but it's in John. The guards did not break Jesus' legs. Let me show you. John 19.33 says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Now, why would they break somebody's legs? They're already being crucified, right? They're going to die. Why break their legs? Well, this was done to hasten the person being crucified, to hasten their death. You see, crucifixion was not a death of bleeding. It was a death of asphyxiation. You can't get enough air. So as you're hanging there and it's pulling your body down, you can't lift your chest up to get air in there. But what these people would do, because the will to live is so strong, people being crucified would push on the nail in their feet to lift up their chest so they could get air in there. But once the guards came by and broke their legs, they couldn't do it. Broken legs could no longer lift a chest to allow breathing. But John tells us, they broke the legs of the one thief. They broke the legs of the other thief. They came to Jesus. He was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Now, do you realize this was prophesied in Psalm 22 and verse 17, a thousand years before crucifixion ever took place? And when you read Psalm 22 and verse 17, it says, I can tell all my bones. That word tell in Hebrew means count. And so what we are being told there is the person being crucified prophecy about the one being crucified would be able to count all his bones. They weren't broken. They were all there. He could count them. But there's something else going on too. This was also the fulfillment of the Passover from Exodus 12. Now you've probably heard of the Passover when the night before the children of Israel are leaving Egypt and they have to sacrifice a Passover lamb and they have to take the blood and paint it over their doorpost. This is all found in Exodus chapter 12 Exodus chapter 12 was written 1,500 years before the crucifixion. And when you read Exodus 12, you find out there are certain requirements for the Passover lamb. First of all, it must be slain during Passover season. Jesus was. According to verse 3, it must be a lamb. Well, Jesus was a human, but what did John the Baptist call him? The lamb of God that takes away the salvation or takes away the, the sin of the world. And then according to verse 5, it was to be without blemish. We know Jesus was perfect in every way. Also, the lamb had to be a male. Well, Jesus was certainly a male human being. Also, the, according to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover lamb had to be in its prime. In other words, in its first year. Well, a man is not in his prime 
in his first year. He's in his prime when he's about 30 years old. Many of you and me too, we're beyond our prime. I see some of the ladies looking at their, looking at their husbands like, you're beyond your prime. That's right, we are. But Jesus wasn't. In verse 8 of Exodus chapter 12, you had to eat the flesh of this lamb. Now, do you remember at the Last Supper what Jesus said? He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Drink this cup. It's the New Testament in my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. You had to eat the flesh. According to verse 13 of Exodus chapter 12, you had to apply the blood to your doorpost to remove God's judgment. God was going to judge every household that did not have the blood put over the doorpost. But verse 46 is the most telling from Exodus chapter 12. It says, in no way should you break any bones of the Passover lamb. Don't break the bones. For all these reasons, that's why Paul calls Jesus our Passover. Look here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Now we know the Hebrews had to apply the lamb's blood to be passed over in God's final judgment of Egypt. But we too must apply the Lamb's blood to be passed over in God's final judgment of people. So let me ask you this morning, has Jesus' blood been applied to your heart? Just like those Jews, like you see in the picture there, they had to take that, it wasn't just the the Israelites, not just the Jews, uh, they had to take that blood and paint it over their doorposts. That's the only way they could avoid God's judgment. And the only way for us to avoid God's judgment is to take the blood of the Lamb and apply it to our hearts. And so I ask you again, has Jesus' blood been applied to your heart? Let me ask it another way. Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? That He was buried for your sins and the third day He rose again from the dead? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Has Jesus' blood been applied to your heart? Well, there's one more prophecy I want us to look at from the crucifixion. And that's what I call the cave. Look in verse 60. Talking about Jesus' body, it says, And he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, tombs were often cut out of rock, like a cave. Jesus was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's new tomb. I just read that in verse 60. Why did Joseph end up getting Jesus' body? Because Joseph requested Jesus' dead body in verse 58. And it's very important to note verse 57 that tells us that Joseph was a rich man. Why? Because this was prophesied in Isaiah 53 and verse 9. 800 years before Jesus ever died, Isaiah said he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's exactly what happened. But I think you know the rest of the story. Jesus only borrowed Joseph's tomb for the weekend, didn't he? He only borrowed the tomb for the weekend. He didn't need it permanently, just for the weekend. Because he rose again from the dead early Sunday morning. And the Bible says now he is alive forevermore. He's alive forevermore. Yes, Jesus died on the cross just like the prophecy said he would. But he rose again from the dead just like the prophecy said he would. Have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your risen Lord and Savior? Do you believe He died on the cross to pay for your sins? He was buried for your sins. He rose again the third day for you. Do you believe that? Because what I am telling you is these are facts. These prophecies are facts that that Jesus died, that He was buried, rose again from the dead. That is fact. But the facts don't do you any eternal good without faith. You must 
believe that Jesus died for you, that Jesus was buried for you, that Jesus rose again from the dead for you. These are facts. I only share with you facts, except my jokes. But what you need is taking these facts and apply them in faith. And so the challenge here today is the question, have you believed? Have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you believe He died, was buried, and rose again from the dead for you? You can receive Him right here and right now. Be completely forgiven of all your sins. Again, it's not just facts. You've got to have faith. But what about you, Christian? Maybe you've been sort of doubting God's Word. Maybe you've been listening to other people that say, well, you know, there's, there's all these versions out there, all these different translations, and, and maybe this, this word was not translated correctly, or, or we're just not sure if this belongs in the Bible. Or, you know, people talk about that kind of stuff all the time. And maybe you've been a little doubtful about God's Word. Today, would you renew your faith in God's Word? Just from this message today, you've seen what we looked at. The coins were prophesied. The clothes were prophesied. The criminals were prophesied. The crowd was prophesied. The call was prophesied. The count was prophesied. The cave was prophesied. I can't say it. Prophesied. And that's in just one chapter of the Bible, just chapter 27 of Matthew. And each one of these prophecies was written hundreds or even thousands of years before it ever took place. You can trust God. You can trust God's Word. Will you today, Christian, reaffirm your faith in God's Word? It is true, every single word of it. And so again, the invitation, receive Christ as your Savior. Apply His blood to your hearts in faith. Having received Christ as Savior, renew your faith in His precious Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for teaching us from these prophecies here at the crucifixion. We thank you that your word is trustworthy just like you are. If you said it, you make it happen. You bring it to pass. You know the future. You know the present. You know the past. We can trust in you completely. Father, there may be somebody here who's never received Christ as Savior. Give them grace and faith to believe right here, right now. And for those of us who have believed, may we renew our faith not only in you, but in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation.